Thank you for joining us here at First Baptist Church of San Antonio, whether online or on broadcast, in your homes or wherever you may be. We want you to know that you are more than welcome to be a part of the life of this church. And we want you to know that we want you to meet Jesus today. In order for this to happen regularly, we need your support, we need your prayers, and we need your financial gifts. Please continue to give and be a part of what we do today. Thank you, choir. Our reading for today comes from our reverse passage from Job chapter 41. If you'll join me, if you'll stand and join me in reading it all together. This then is the reading for today. Can you drag out Leviathan with a fish hook and press down his tongue with a rope? Can you put a rope in his nose and pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make pleas to you or will he speak to you gentle words? Will he make a covenant with you? Will you take him as a servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird? With your young girls. Will the traders bargain for him? Will they divide him among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? No one is so reckless that he dares to stir him. Who then is he? who opposes me. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. There's a little chorus that was written back in 1933 by songwriters Frank Churchill and Anne Ronnell, and I can almost guarantee you that when they wrote this little chorus, they had no clue that 90, almost 100 years later, we would still recognize it. It goes like this. Who's afraid of the big bad wolf, the big bad wolf, the big bad wolf? Who's afraid of the big bad wolf? Tra-la-la-la-la. Sing that with me. Who's afraid of the big bad wolf, the big bad wolf, the big bad wolf? Who's afraid of the big bad wolf? Tra-la-la-la-la. Well done, well done. So here's a question. Good theology or bad theology? Let's find out, shall we? Good theology or bad theology? We're thinking today about being afraid. We're talking today about fear. And the place that fear holds in the human condition Some would say, well, fear is neither a good thing or a bad thing. It's just a part of being human. Is that true? Is it a good thing or is it a bad thing or is it neither? One thing we do know that everyone knows, it's a powerful thing. It's a huge factor, in fact, in in what shapes how we engage with one another. I think it has a lot to do with where we are as a culture today. Fear. I think how I engage with you has a lot to do with whether I fear you and whether you fear me. I think how we engage with people who think differently than us or who grew up differently than us or who believe very strongly differently than us has a lot to do with whether we fear that and the consequences of that kind of thinking or not. 
No, I, I, I do think that we have a fear management problem in our culture. And I think it's become way too prevalent in this culture war way of engaging with one another. It's become a tool that our culture uses to recruit us, to manipulate us, to shape how we think. And there are some aspects, because listen, I know that this kind of shaping and manipulating and recruiting has always been there. Fear has always been a factor in every civilization for, for how people would use, that it would be something people would use to change how we think. But I think in our current culture, I think there are some aspects of our current culture who exacerbate that, that make it even worse. I think that in this information age, when there's more information available to all of us than any of us can possibly process, we begin to rely on others. We begin to rely on leaders and others to tell us which information is important to pay attention to. And we begin to rely on others to tell us what we should be afraid of. And in fact, I would go so far as to say that whoever that is for me, whoever that is for you, whoever you rely on to tell you you should be afraid of this, you should be afraid of that, you should be afraid of them, you should be afraid of the consequences of that kind of thinking, whoever it is you rely on to feed you that fear, I would say is a leader in your life. I would say you follow them. I follow those people. Many of those leaders who are, by the way, competing for our attention have learned to use fear in order to keep our attention. In a culture war where thought leaders are competing for our attention and our fellowship, fear-mongering is the weapon of choice on every side. The people, the organizations, whom we trust to tell us what to be afraid of are the ones we have chosen to follow, the ones to whom we have given the right to shape how we think. So we end up choosing our place in this culture based upon the things we fear the most. And by the way, that's exactly what Job did. Job chose his place before the Lord. He chose his place based upon his fears. We've seen it. We've watched it happen for some 40 chapters now. In all of his conversation with his friends and with God, he feared the prospect of being abandoned by God. He feared the prospect of losing the respect of his friends and his family. He feared the prospect of this suffering going on interminably, or worse, ending all of a sudden with his death. He feared that his reputation, his legacy, his influence would be ruined. And it's out of that fear, it's out of that fear that he shakes his fist at God and he demands an audience. He demands a redeemer to come and vindicate him. Demanding is kind of an interesting way to approach God. I dare say none of us would think to demand something of God unless we've lost our way, unless we've gotten so 
turned inward on our own suffering and our own anxieties and our own troubles and struggles and storms of this life that we lose sight of who we're talking to. And then and only then, you and I, we might just start demanding things of God the way Job did. God shows up in our study of Job. It happened last week first. God shows up and he gives Job something to be afraid of. He demonstrates for Job that his fear is misdirected, is misguided. He's afraid of the wrong things. And that happens with us too. It happens with us as Christ followers. It happens with all of us. We, we demonstrate to a watching world that we are afraid of the brokenness of this world and that we fear the consequences of that brokenness. And in some cases, it looks an awful lot to the world as if we fear those consequences more than we fear God himself. And that's the adjustment in our thinking that God wants to make today. Now, sometimes we're wise enough to stand up and say, but that's not Christianity, is it? We can all quote 2 Timothy 1, 7. God did not give us a spirit of fear, but he gave us a spirit of love, right? And so we know that we're not supposed to be acting out of fear in those ways. But listen, let me tell you, that verse is not the totality of what God has to say about fear. There's so much more. And that brings us to our passage today. What in the world is Leviathan? Can we just talk about that? Who is Leviathan? What is Leviathan? And let me just say right up front, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what Leviathan is. There are a lot of theories, a lot of good, godly scholars who have disagreed over this. There are some scholars, those who probably would lean more towards the literal interpretation of Scripture, who would say Leviathan was an animal. Some of those scholars would say a long extinct animal, maybe a dinosaur of some kind. Others of those scholars would say, no, it's an animal that Job would have been familiar with at the time he was living, not a dinosaur, more like a crocodile, maybe. Behemoth is a hippopotamus. Leviathan is a crocodile. But let me just remind you, we're reading poetry here. And so even if we lean towards a literal interpretation of Scripture, that doesn't lock us into animals that we're familiar with necessarily. There are other ways to interpret this. Other scholars would say, no, behemoth represents something huge, something indestructible, whatever your mind can conceive of, but God made it. Leviathan represents something dangerous, something dark, something evil. Leviathan's mentioned in several places in Scripture. Leviathan, the name Leviathan, was a part of ancient Jewish mythology for sure. So it may have been a mythical creature for all we know. We don't know. We just don't know for sure. But here's what we do know. In the poetry of Job, Leviathan seems to represent something or a circumstance which terrifies Job the most. Some scholars say Leviathan represents Satan. 
That would make sense in the context of Job because, let's be honest, Satan is the one who caused all of this. Satan is the one who brought all of this on Job. But what we know is that Job is terrified of whatever it was that caused this to him. He is so inwardly turned, so focused on his own suffering, he is terrified. That's what he fears the most. Leviathan represents that. You see, the, in ancient Hebrew thinking, the sea was a dark and dangerous place. Whenever you see in ancient Hebrew writing, when you see things about the sea, it's always talking about bad things, evil things, dark things, dangerous things. The sea represents darkness and danger. And Leviathan is a part of that. And so in short, Leviathan is the big bad wolf of Scripture. Certainly in Job's life. What God seems to be showing Job through this poetic story is that he is fearing whatever it is that brought all of this on him when he should be fearing the God who created whatever it is that brought all this on him. His fear was misdirected. Now, here's what we struggle with. We struggle with, number one, it's poetry, Blake. How many of us really spend most of our days reading poetry? Come on. Number two, it's ancient Hebrew poetry. And so it's not always easy for us to glean these truths out of this. And so what I thought I would do for you today is take you to another story that you're probably even more familiar with from the New Testament that makes the point just very, very abruptly and blank. Uh, point blank. There's no way to miss it. It's a story about Jesus. It's a story you're familiar with. One of the places you'll find this story is in Mark chapter 4. Here's what it sounds like. That day when evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let's go to the other side. He's talking there about the Sea of Galilee. And he's been teaching hordes of people on the, sea of, uh, on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And then he says to them, to the disciples, let's get in the boat. Let's go to the other side of the lake. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. And there were also other boats with him, and a furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. And Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. And the disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Let's stop here for just a moment and draw the connection to Job, shaking his fist at God, saying, God, don't you care that this is happening? God, where are you? Don't you even care that I'm about to die here? Jesus, don't you care that we're drowning? We could drown. Don't you care? And let's make the connection even a little bit further. We live in a culture who is screaming at us that we should be afraid, that you should be afraid. Don't you care about this injustice? Why aren't you standing up and doing something? Why aren't you saying something? Why aren't you posting on your Facebook about this injustice or that injustice? Don't you care? See, this is what fear does to us. This is the mismanagement of fear. This is what fear does to all of us. Jesus, don't you care? God, don't you care? It goes on, though. Verse 39 of Mark chapter 4. He got up. Jesus got up. He rebuked the wind, and he said to the waves, Quiet, 
be still. And then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. And he said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Listen to this. Verse 41, Mark chapter 4. They were terrified. And they asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. You see, for them, being afraid wasn't the problem. Being afraid of the wrong stuff, that was the problem. Their problem, Job's problem, was being more afraid of their circumstances than they feared God himself. They, like Job, got a, a course correction in their fear. Their fear got redirected to where it should have been in the first place. Now listen, when I talk about fear of God, when God talks about fear of God, it's not fear of some kind of a mean-spirited, evil, all-powerful God that's looking to zap you whenever you mess up. That's not what this is talking about. He's talking about a fear of God that is about awe and respect. An understanding of the bigness of God and the smallness of us. And when Job shakes his fist at God saying, where are you? God just does a little course direction, redirection and says, wait a minute. Job, you're, you're afraid of the wrong thing here. And when the disciples said, Jesus, aren't you going to help us? He did the same thing. Why are you afraid of that? You should, you should be fearing God himself. And the same is true for us. We, when fear of our circumstances or of the brokenness of this world dominates our lives, preventing us from being able to see the truth about God, then we are in trouble and in need of a significant shift in our perspective. And a shift in his perspective is exactly what Job got. We know that. We know that because of what happens next. Job answers God. God, you ask the question, who is it that is talking about stuff he knows nothing about? It's me. It was me. Speaking out of turn. Talking about things I know nothing of. It was me, God. And he says, very interesting thing, he says... Verse 5, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract and I repent, sitting on dust and ashes. It's as if Job is saying, before this happened, God, I knew about you. But now I know you. Do you see that distinction? It's one thing to know all there is to know about God. It's another thing altogether to actually come into his presence and know God. And that's the transformation that happened in Job. That's the conversion experience that happened in Job's life. And that's the conversion experience that must happen in ours. Make no mistake, friends, this is the climax of this story. This is what this story is all about. It's all about this journey towards a complete reorientation of how he saw God. It's all about a complete rethinking and reorientation, a transformation of how he understands who he is, 
compared to how he understands God. This is the climax of the story. You say, well, like, there's another lesson next week, and, and everything good is going to happen next week, and, and Job gets rich again, and he gets a family again, and he gets his influence back, and I'm just going to tell you, there's a part of me that wishes we weren't even going to do next week's lesson, and let me tell you why, because that's not the point of this story. Don't let that be the point of this story. This is the point of this story. This conversion experience. Next week is the denouement of this story. It's the happily ever after of this story. That's what next week is. And it's important. And God wants us to know it. But this is the climax. This transformation. This complete conversion of Job. He changed what he feared. It is the very picture of a conversion. He, he knew about God before. And now he knows God. It is the call that God places on each of our lives. The distinction, listen, the distinction between knowing about God and knowing God is the most significant spiritual distinction in our lives. Let me say that again. The distinction between knowing about God and knowing God is the most important spiritual distinction in our lives. The question for each of us is what will it take for me to humble myself before a sovereign God and actually know Him? Will you pray with me? We understand the place of fear in our lives, Lord. Every single one of us here confess to you that fear has mis is misdirected in so many instances in our lives. We all experience that, Father. And we understand, Lord, that we don't fix that. You do. We don't change that. You change that. Don't let us leave here today changing what we're afraid of and thinking we've fixed everything. No, Father, our prayer is that you will draw us close to you and that you will change everything in our lives. Will you do that for us, Father, even now? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.